Welcome back to Talking About Glaucoma, a podcast of indeterminate length and frequency. I'm your host, Robert Scherzer, a glaucoma specialist from Vancouver, BC, Canada. To help produce future shows more frequently, I will no longer include artwork and chapter markings. Hopefully, this will get me back on track to publishing new episodes each month this coming year. As always, contact me at podcast at iguy.org, that's I-G-U-Y.org, if you have a glaucoma topic that you would like to discuss with me on a future episode. In this episode, I talk with Murray Johnstone from Seattle about pulsatile flow through the trabecular meshwork and collector channels. We discuss the imaging improvements over the years that have made this possible, including the latest phase-based OCT scans that result in nanometer resolution instead of the micrometer resolution of spectral domain scans that most of us are using in clinical practice. I'm Rob Scherzer, and we're talking about glaucoma. Okay, well, welcome to the show, Murray Johnstone from Seattle. And today we're going to talk about pulsatile flow through the trabecular meshwork and collector channels, which is something that you've been working on for a few years. And it always amazes me, like, the, th- the things you come up with. Uh, really uh, don't, don't know where you pull these things from in, in your mind, what makes you think you dream these things up, but... Let's hear hear where this came from and sure. its implications. Yeah, well, what's interesting is it didn't just suddenly happen. Uh, it's, it's been an evolution over many, many years. And I first started out, uh, I worked in an aqueous outfall lab in Seattle uh, many years before I even went into uh, Morton Grant's lab at Howe Lab in Boston. And uh, I learned a little bit about aqueous outflow and thought maybe I could uh, make a contribution. So I went into his lab and realized I knew almost nothing and uh, started reading a great deal and uh, realized that the arachnoid villi, they discovered what looked like uh, structures that were in very active motion or little tubes that were uh, opening and collapsing. And I began to wonder if there was a similar thing in the trabecular meshwork. And uh, so I ended up uh, doing a series of studies in living primates, actually, where I would fix the eyes at different pressures and uh, was able to come to realize that the trabecular meshwork really is in very active motion. And uh, I was sort of stunned by it and the concept that the giant vacuoles were actually just pressure-dependent structures. And that was this whole eyes or was this, this perfusion whole chamber eyes in models? vivo wow. in, in, okay. when animals were alive still. So mm-hmm. I had normal upscale venous pressure. I could drop the pressure in the eye and reverse pressure gradient. So it allowed us to do a lot of things that uh, had not been done before. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw what looked like a set of valves with um, uh, structures that were spanning across Slim's Canal. And I could basically get blood reflux into these things, but nothing came across Schlem's canal endothelium, which made me think that they were acting as little valves. So over the years, this uh, sort of haunted me, and I, I felt that uh, I should try and explore it a little more and, and uh, figure out what was going on, but I got busy in a clinical practice and uh, really uh, kind of put it aside for a number of years, but then came back to it um, with, uh, uh, I guess, uh, oh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I started working with Robert Stegman and asking him uh, what he was seeing. And I kept uh, reading about the aqueous veins and realized that aqueous uh, 
undergoes pulsatile motion from Schlem's canal in his aqueous veins, and something has to be pulsatile or pumping. There has to be some tissue motion for that to occur. So this, he had that high speed, uh, he had a high, the speed, high resolution, extremely high cameras, resolution camera, right? And you could see the pulsatile flow through the yeah, right. Well, I saw it through the aqueous veins, and and there was a great deal of documentation in the earlier literature when the, the golden age of clinical observation uh, first or, um, became available, and really the slit lamp was a tool that, that was a, the technological breakthrough that allowed um, Asher and Goldman to discover the aqueous veins and the pulsatile flow there. And as a result of that, they, uh, first of all, they saw the, the flow in the eye or into the aqueous veins and, and discovered or made it a definitive that, that uh, aqueous was flowing, which is a fundamental thing that had not been established until that point. But the other thing was a, a highly salient feature was that the flow was pulsatile. And in their earliest papers, they pointed out that the aqueous outflow drugs were increasing the pulsatility. And that was a, a major clue that there's something about the pulsatile motion that increases uh, in the context of uh, of uh, pressure improvement with um, glaucoma medications. So that how, how would it increase the pulsatility? Is it altering the, the tissue? Or? Um, well, of course, the question was, why is it pulsatile flow altered? And they really didn't have any answers back then, but there were a number of studies with adrenergics and uh, with uh, also with myotics showing that uh, if you uh, basically introduce these drugs into the eye in glaucoma patients, uh, in patients who had very little or no pulsatile flow, dramatic increase in pulsatile flow within a matter of minutes, within... Uh, with adrenergics within five minutes and within with uh, myotics within about 15 minutes. Uh, and actually atropine slowed pulsatile flow. So they had a whole series of um, basically pretty clear observations about what was happening, but no explanation of why. And I went back and read Goldman's work. He thought that the meshwork was rigid and they couldn't explain how the ocular pulse could get across the trabecular meshwork uh, to Schlem's canal to drive the canal motion. And uh, so he, through his entire career, he and, and Asher as well were never able to provide a, uh, a synthesis of the fact that the aqueous outflow was pulsatile, that uh, that there was a pulsatile flow, of course, inside the eye where we have typically about a three millimeter pulse variation. Right. So there was this, this situation that was there. And, of course, the answer to this is time is... Uh, gone by and we've realized that there's a motion in the trabecular meshwork tissues that this that the pulsatile flow in the aqueous veins results from the ocular pulse, which drives the trabecular meshwork. It has got to be moving. It's the only explanation possible that permits um, uh, an explanation for the driving of the uh, ocular pulse to drive flow out of the eye. So then those drugs that you mentioned would be parasympathetic or sympathetic stimulants, so they would alter the blood Exactly. Blood flow. Yes. Okay. So, well, uh, of course, pilocarpine is well known to increase contractility. And, of course, we have uh, the work from uh, 
uh, Mike Van Buskirk and others showing that if you basically increase the tension, uh, which is simulated with the lens depression experiments, if you increase tension on the the, uh, the ciliary body, what it does is uh, uh, makes the uh, intratrabecular spaces enlarge, it causes the canalis lens to enlarge, and it actually uh, then puts the meshwork in a position to expand and, and basically undergo motion much more actively in response to pressure gradient changes. Uh, and particularly the ocular pulse, so it provides it provides it now an explanation in retrospect, but not one that was apparent before. Uh, and the the issue with adrenergics remains a, a bit of an unknown. Uh, it may be that there's a downstream improvement in uh, basically reduction in resistance. Uh, there's uh, considerable work now that, uh, for instance, bromonidine reduces. Uh, episcleral venous pressure, and uh, that it may be that uh, the whole apparatus can simply start moving more effectively when there's a, what they call the afterload is uh, reduced in the system, sort of like in the heart when you reduce the, the afterload. So uh, those are clues. And uh, uh, another thing when we started uh, studying... So, so when you have more motion, you have more aqueous flowing out through Exactly. You've got a enhanced pulsatile flow. Okay. Yeah. Right, and it's literally a stroke volume, and a stroke yeah. volume that they uh, characterized in lymphatics as well. The lymphatics are described as mini ventricles in the sense that uh, when you've got the um, pulsatile changes within the uh, tissue as a result of alterations in tissue turgor with uh, changes in the uh, cardiac pulse, what that does is, is drive these little mini ventricles each time to uh, drive um, lymphatic fluid forward within the aqueous vein. And this same phenomenon presumably is occurring in the um, within the um, outflow system of the eye. So that's the um, conceptual uh, framework, at least. And as these various pieces started to fall into place, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with Robert Stegman, who um, actually uh, was able to demonstrate. Uh, motion within the collector channels, and we've got a number of videos of that, and and is published in several books where uh, you can watch the pulsatile motion of aqueous entering the aqueous veins uh, or entering the collector channels. That is uh, just distal to Schlem's canal from when looking with gonioscopy. It's very very striking. Yeah. Fascinating. And in addition, he's actually, uh, he had a technique that allowed us by just creating an equilibrium between uh, intraocular pressure and epscleral venous pressure by increasing epscleral venous pressure with a flange gonial lens, uh, you could create an equilibrium situation where the aqueous was oscillating back and forth in the collector channels and watch blood-stained aqueous moving out of the aqueous, uh, out of Schlem's canal into the collector channels. Stunning stuff, really wonderful. But at uh, that point, you still weren't actually measuring these pulse volumes. No, you couldn't right. measure it. Uh, but the other thing was he actually also showed aqueous flowing into the eye through little structures with a configuration uh, similar to the valve-like structures I described histologically, you can watch the um, basically propagation of the aqueous into the aqueous or into the Schlem's canal and, and watch the blood mixing with the aqueous as it is injected in the uh, canal with each pulse. So we have another piece of the puzzle there. So all these things start to come together. and uh, But we had no ability really to um, image what was going on at the level of the meshwork. So we didn't have definitive evidence of this whole phenomenon. Right. So the, then when did it 
get to the point where you could start to measure this? Well, then uh, we went into the laboratory and set up um, <clears throat> a, a laboratory system, which uh, we used a... Uh, uh, primate eyes, uh, which were fre very fresh eyes, and also human eyes, and were able to take the anterior segments, induce an ocular pulse that, uh, that we controlled, and then with the OCT system, uh, actually measure the um, or, or image the ocular um, pulsatile motion of the tissues, and then uh, quantitate that motion with OCT. And in the laboratory, it's, it's easier because you don't have motion. Uh, the OCT requires requires basically a tremendous amount of algorithms to get rid of um, extraneous motion in, in humans because you've got uh, bulk motion, uh, you've got uh, microsaccades, you've got uh, many motions, uh, and uh, you've got whole body motion, you've got the ballistic head movements. All of these things have to be taken out in the living eye. Right. But in the uh, in the in the ex vivo environment, you can really control it. So that allowed us to uh, basically measure the uh, uh, motion of the trabecular meshwork, bulk motion of the meshwork. Right. Um, uh, and, and which generation OCT was that? Uh, that's with uh, that was with phase based OCT. Okay. And, and uh, should I? I'll talk. Yeah. About so that. So that's. The one that's in the nanometer resolution right, instead yeah. of micron resolution. Right. Now I'll explain that. Um, what uh, time-based uh, or TDOCT and SDOCT are basically uh, optically, um, structurally uh, defined, and they they use standard optics. And the maximum resolution with standard optics is around four microns. That's a maximum that can be achieved with any of the uh, commercially available devices, and it's 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 a theoretical limit as well, four microns. And uh, this is in contrast to phase that would be four times ten to the minus nine. Uh, that's uh, ten to the minus sixth. Ten to the minus sixth, and uh, the I was very fortunate to work with Ricky Wang, who uh, basically in about 2007 published some seminal papers, which were an entirely new conceptual framework of being able to tease out information about motion uh, theoretically at the level of uh, picometers. That's, uh, and the theoretical re resolution limit is in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 picometers. That's the... Uh, Dimensions of the orbit of a uh, of the electrons in a helium nucleus. <laughs> it's astounding, yeah. but uh, but the practical resolution because of pico uh, is minus twelve because of uh, uh, and uh, yes uh, the uh, resolution uh, with phase based OCT is in the, is in the range of minus ten to the minus twelve, which uh, pushes you into the range where you can get uh, extremely high uh, right. resolution. But I want to emphasize that it's not resolution actually is sensitivity to motion okay uh, you can detect motion of tissues and it's not a structural image that you achieve with this so, so we're talking about so we're basically measuring with this device the equivalent of movement of electrons is that what you're no, saying or? no we're at the we're at the nanometer level okay. yeah so we're um the best resolution with the system currently that's probably available is in the nature of about 20 nanometers 
Okay. Yeah, so that's a 10 to the minus 9. Pretty darn you. good. It's yeah. still, you know, a thousand times higher resolution than the SDOCT. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, as we're talking about resolution of structure with SDOCT, we're talking about uh, re uh, basically sensitivity to motion, motion right. with phase-based LCT. So they're really different concepts, but what that allows you to do then is to tease out the, the um, motion at a very high level of resolution. And for that reason, uh, the basically the SDOCT isn't able to uh, to easily because of uh, shadowing uh, and vessel shadowing and the thickness and the scatter of the sclera isn't able to resolve um, uh, the trabecular meshwork motion at all well uh, it's quite limited but with um, the phase base OT because of the far higher dynamic range it can tease out the motion of the trabecular meshwork and that's what we're achieving that's unique Got it. Um, and I'd like to also point out that uh, what what we're doing is we can the same information that's uh, achieved with SDOCT we're using phase to um, allow us to uh, overlay an SDOCT image. We lay the phase image over it so we can see where we are and then we see the motion with the phase and we see the structure uh, at a, a much lower resolution or I should say a resolution uh, with the SDOCT. So we've, we've got structure and then phase overlaid on top right. of it if that's a reasonable. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And uh, so that's a phase-based issue, and that's why we're, we're able to push this uh, boundary to this level. It requires a, a great deal of um, uh, work in terms of algorithms to, um, again, optimize the, uh, and, and eliminate the motion. That's uh, right. uh, bulk motion, other motion than, than what you want. So. Right. So first you did that in in vitro. Uh, ex vivo. Uh, ex vivo. Yeah. Okay. And then and um, you're... And uh, more recently, we've been able to then uh, modify that to uh, write the algorithms. And, and I'm very fortunate to work with uh, Ricky Wang's lab and uh, some of his uh, postdocs who have written is these algorithms that now allow us to tease out this information in vivo in, in living human beings where right. we can actually watch the, um, the behavior of the, the tissues in, in real life. Right, so I saw some of the videos. You have five human subjects where so yes. far... Yes, yeah, we've done this now in um, uh, over, I guess, about 12 subjects, and uh, we can uh, we can basically tease out the phase motion in, in all of them, uh, but about we're at about 80% success in terms of getting good good quality images but th this technology is really in its infancy uh, uh, we, uh, the illumination uh, capabilities uh, the camera speeds uh, all the algorithms can probably improve by orders of magnitude so uh -huh. sort of like it's a little bit like where MRI was when they first were able to see motion uh, and uh, it proceeded if, if you have an opportunity to read the history is incredible the, the, the advances that occur as a result of the all the various things that can be developed, that same thing is likely, I think, occur with a phase-based OCT, yeah. which is really at the beginning. Definitely. So I'm wondering with this then, have you looked at inter-test variability? So if you retest the same patient, uh, and but it, I 
as I was thinking of that, it also dawned on me, if you get a different reading, it could be that their outflow is different that day. Exactly. So how do you even, yeah. how can you even confirm it? Yeah, it's a real time issue. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, there, there are many, many questions that, uh, you know, that first of all, this immediately starts requiring you to ask. Uh, first of all, how does it vary uh, in, by location uh, around the limbus? Uh, how does it vary from minute to minute? How does it vary with the pulse rate? Um, and... Uh, uh, as you say, what's a what's the uh, you know inter measurement variability? But of course, because it's a real time living situation, it's a changing second by second, instantaneous changes. It's going to be varying from minute right. to minute. So, in second to second, in fact, every pulse, ocular pulse, uh, you've got that issue. Mm -hmm. So, would this would you be able to imply from this that areas in the eye where you're seeing bigger pulsatile flow that the collector systems are working better in that area and you might yes. consider clinically to target that for treatments yeah we we actually have a and, and this is published work by the way uh, the phase-based information we have uh, actually 10 patients where we're able to show uh, simultaneous uh, pulse uh, peaks and uh, the tissue motion peaks and, and basically they're highly synchronous. It's something like an order of uh, 0.0009 or something uh, in this range. Uh, very highly significant correlation between uh, pulse and the um, trabecular meshwork motion, uh, basically the peaks. But, but in some ways an even more interesting thing which we recently published is uh, we had a patient with an iris cyst uh, which closed the angle on one side, right. but the angle was open on the other. And on the side with the closed angle, um, there is no pulsatile motion. Right. Uh, on the side with uh, with the open angle, very That's easily there. measurable pulsatile motion with all the pulse amplitudes and uh, velocities yeah. that you would anticipate. So we have good evidence that uh, where there's an absence of flow, uh, there's no motion. And with yeah. normal flow, we, we have motion. So that, I think, to some extent answers your question. Uh, but we also have so far just been working in normals because we feel we need to establish a database of normals uh, and what their amplitudes are before we should begin to try and understand what's going on in glaucoma. Right. One of the major problems with this is that there's likely to be a, quite a spectrum in glaucoma and uh, patients who are on medications that are perhaps in, enhancing their outflow might look fairly normal um, but so there's that issue uh, we also have the issue of um, the uh, the question about what happens with laser procedures before and after right. what happens with uh, you know if somebody's had a surgery uh, what would happen what happens in people who've had stents in areas adjacent to the stents right. there, there are numerous questions yeah uh, I know it's really uh, incredible just something else that's dying on me I'm, I'm sure you've looked at this too is there any uh sort of like Eisenberg uncertainty principle thing in, in that the act of trying to measure this, you're altering the flow and that's yeah that's a, that's a really good question I mean just from the standpoint that I guess every patient perhaps has a, a possible risk of a white coat syndrome which we with every aspect of our right. measurements we have an issue but aside from that uh, the wonderful thing about this is it's non-contact and it's non-invasive okay. uh, so you're it's a standoff distance from the eye so to the extent that you're doing something like equivalent to a slit lamp examination 
situation. Uh, there's probably, uh, it doesn't have the issue of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle right. from that standpoint. You're not interfering with the system uh, directly. Right. But some other things I might cover um, is that if we got this figured out well, and, and it's going to require a great deal of optimization, but it's quite possible as we look forward, and I guess I'm trying to envision, a, a, say I'm a bit of a dreamer, but that we'll have a small portable device that can be probably uh, used as a screening tool, and quite conceivably it could be used to uh, uh, screen people to determine whether they have uh, normal motion or not. Right. Uh, and very early uh, in the disease process, you might be able to identify people without normal motion, uh, and before they start getting into major problems with pressure, uh, identify those people. Another aspect is that, as we've talked about many times, uh, the interocular pressure measurements we take are not a very effective tool to uh, understand what's going on in terms of pressures. And, uh, for instance, uh, diurnal pressure changes, the fact that we have patients looking straight ahead without any motion when we check their pressures, uh, and the fact that uh, pressures vary as much as 10 millimeters uh, with blinking, the ocular pulse, which we don't really characterize at all, and, and yet it's a constant variable. And then the diurnal changes, which are about uh, often 5 to 10 millimeters, we don't characterize any of that with our current techniques, right. but this apparatus, this beautiful apparatus in our eye that's maintaining homeostasis, if, if in fact we could characterize that well, we might be able to get a much better sense of uh, what represents normal behavior and predict who's having going to have pre problems with pressure at times when we're not measuring it. Yeah. So I think it has real potential there now. You know, again, these are uh, dreamers. Uh, concerns, but uh, we you know. won't get anywhere if we don't dream. No, this is so. yeah. You have to have, so, you have to have the have dream. The big ideas. Yeah, so. right. Yeah, and then uh, of course um, the uh, you know where do you go? Um, basically, if you've got people with distal outflow uh, system is not working well, which we we can characterize to some extent here, or the meshwork's not in motion, uh, we could think in terms of perhaps having a far less satisfactory outcome with SLT. Or, or any of the laser procedures, we might want to move on more quickly to something else uh, and spare them uh, a, a long period of time when we're experimenting with different kinds of things and move directly to a more appropriate procedure. Uh, there's another aspect also with medications. Uh, first of all, adrenergics work in about five minutes, and I didn't mention this, but uh, prostaglandins also have a time course. They work in about 20 to 30 minutes with a marked increase in pulsatile flow, and it might be we could bring patients in and put drops in their eyes, um, wait in the office, and we'll, check. And we'll know what's going to work for them. Yeah, before they leave the office. That's amazing. Uh, because when they come back at a later time, <clears throat> we're faced with people who, uh, first of all, we don't know whether they're compliant or not. We might be dealing with a different time of the day. We're dealing with a, a yeah. different situation in any case. And uh, we really, when we bring it back to that next visit, we don't know. Right. But half an hour later, 
you have a lot more control over all those other factors. Right. You've got a far more limited time frame. So the idea is you might be able to actually uh, identify patients beforehand and eliminate those who aren't going to get a benefit. Uh, Many times when they come back, we think they've had a benefit, but it might be just regression to the mean. They end up with the meds for maybe the rest of their lives. Or others who come back uh, looking like they've had no benefit, but in fact may simply have not taken their meds or uh, might have had a a higher pressure that day. And so we can probably, uh, might be able to reduce the number of patients on inappropriate medications fairly dramatically. So this is another dream. No, that's great. That really solves the everyday problem of uh, glaucoma medical therapy where for everyone it's, you have to try them before you buy them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, You can go on for weeks or months adding or taking away drugs right without with without really not having working. a very clear picture yeah, and not really really uh reliable results if it, if, it, yeah. if the pressure is down another aspect of this i've written this in a couple of publications that we typically measure pressures about uh, three to four times a year and uh, usually it's about a one-second measurement or two seconds. And yes, uh, what percentage of their light of their yeah. year is that pressure reading? Right. So we, we do about twelve seconds yeah. of a out of um, thirty-one million seconds a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know uh, we don't really sample. Our, yeah. our samples are so limited. Uh, so if you were comparing that to a political poll, like uh, what what's your accuracy of that poll of their intraocular pressure? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the hope would be that by if if in fact we could get this uh, uh, system to work well and to characterize the behavior of the outflow system and its ability to maintain homeostasis, normal motion, uh, we might be able to um, totally alter our thinking about uh, how to manage the disease process yeah. and uh, uh, you know when to go on to laser, when to consider surgery, uh, where to go with surgery, where to place a stance. All of these things uh, have some potential at least Great. for being uh, considered. So it sounds like this technology is, has diagnostic advantages uh, and treatment implications, be it medical, laser, or surgery. So diagnostic. sounds like a... Sounds incredible. Sort of like a... a I had a family member with um, a cardiovascular issue recently with a valve issue. Every aspect of her care was uh, dealt with with echocardiography, which is very similar to this, where we can actually watch the uh, tissues in motion from the initial diagnosis to uh, decisions to initiate treatment, to uh, advance, escalate treatment, to uh, decisions about whether to move on to surgery, uh, the type of surgery to use, and and, and basically, even the approach to surgery, where to come in for surgery, are all determined by the, elect- the echocardiogram. And right. this is a, quite a similar conceptual framework. Yeah, so that's right. Uh, now you could do angiography and wall motion studies and exactly, open yeah. up a coronary artery with the stent and see the flow improve and see the wall motion improve. And yeah. this is sort of doing a similar thing. Right. The watch the uh, motion through the valves, watch the valves themselves. Yeah. Uh, there's another piece of this uh, that we've developed is uh, uh, it's this technique uh, can, can see motion, but it doesn't see structure very well. 
So what we did also in the laboratory was to uh, take eyes and basically take segments of eyes and uh, lay them out in front of the optical, uh, the, the OCT system, and then basically direct the beam through the trabecular meshwork, where there's a very short path width, and then we introduce, um, uh, cannulate some canal, and, and then induce pressure gradients into the canal, and we can watch uh, in real time the canal dilate, and we can watch when, when a canal dilates, the collector channel ostea change shape. And it turns out that there are uh, basically hinged collagen flaps or leaflets at the collector channel entrances. Essentially, it looks like all of them. And there are structures spanning between the trabecular meshwork and these collector channel entrances. So every time the meshwork moves, these structures move as well. So the whole apparatus is hinged, and the motion is clearly synchronous. Uh, the advantage of using this uh, system going through the uh, trabecular meshwork is that we can see this motion in great detail, and by dilating the canal, we can really get an idea of uh, relationships between the trabecular meshwork, Schlem's canal, the structure spanning the canal, the collector channel entrances, and also the intrascleral ch uh, collector channels, which run often parallel to Schlem's canal. So we've got this whole apparatus that we can we can watch in great detail and then correlate that with what we're seeing with phase OCT with the motion. So th this uh, the, what I'm describing going trans uh, across the trabecular meshwork is SDOCT, which, which has high resolution of structure, and we can use that in this environment. But another aspect of this is that transcameral uh, probes uh, can be developed. I, I think, in fact, there's some actually um, trying to be developed right now that will work by both uh, structural OCT and phase OCT that may re give us fantastically high resolution uh, for intracameral study of the outflow channels and uh, where to place uh, items, uh, how the whole system's working, uh, basically the information necessary for uh, probably optimizing our, uh, our MIGS procedures. So it's, uh, that's another piece of the puzzle that's uh, very exciting. Yeah, that's really neat. Hey, you should uh, maybe get together with Mike Berlin and see what happens in patients with ELT and yeah. and what happens with the outflow there. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm exploring with some other modalities as well. We've yeah. got uh, the ability to, to look at that. So Great. Fun well, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like a good place to wrap things up. Sounds right. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Take care. That's our show for today. Thanks for your patience as I slowly post new episodes, including a talk about the new glaucoma drug, Ropressa. Please rate the show on iTunes, as this is the best way for other people to find the show. You can subscribe using iTunes, Pocket Casts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and new episodes will appear in your podcast player as they come out. Please tell your friends and colleagues about the show. Drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org with your comments. Visit wholelotofrob.com, westcoastglaucoma.com, or follow me on Twitter at Rob Scherzer. Links to all of these are in the show notes. Remember to keep fighting glaucoma by early detection so that nobody loses vision from this group of diseases.